Right, if you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to open it with me to that passage that Amy Estelle just read. It's in the very first book of the Bible, uh, the book of Genesis, and then you're going to look for chapter 6, which are the larger numbers. She read um, all of chapter 6, but it, this story is actually part of a, a larger picture in the book of Genesis. And it covers three chapters, but today, as we study it, I actually want to only look at four verses. And so once you get to chapter 6, I want you to find verse 5, and we're going to be in verses 5 through verse 8 this morning. One of our goals here at First SF in 2019 is to slowly work our way through this very foundational book, the book of Genesis, that, that tells us much about our beginnings, about why the world is as it is. Now, I would imagine that even if you are very new to Christianity, maybe you are new to coming to church, you have probably heard many of the stories in the book of Genesis, including the one that Amy just read from. If there were a top three list of, of stories that Americans know from the Bible, I think Noah and the ark would probably be at the top of that list. The reason for that is from a young age, for many of us, you begin to see pictures of Noah's ark. I can remember growing up, this story surrounded me. Uh, my dad worked at a Christian bookstore for most of my uh, time into my elementary life, and it was a Christian bookstore called Noah's Ark, so I was always there. At our church, when we would go gather in the children's area, there was a big mural of this massive ark with Noah and all these smiling animals as if they're sunbathing on a cruise. It was a, a great picture. I can remember singing the song, In Came the Animals, Two by Two, the Hippopotamus and Kangaroo. I don't know if anybody else knew that one growing up, but that was my life growing up. And it remains a popular children's story today. If some of you are new parents and you are going to look for crib sheets and crib bedding and those little mobiles that spin around to soothe your children to sleep, one of the main options out there is the ark with all these animals and all that story. But what I find very ironic about all of that, about this story's popularity in general, is that this is one of the least friendly kid stories in all of the Bible. This is not a story about animals sunbathing on the deck of a ship. It's not even a story about Noah and his righteousness. It is a story about divine judgment of a holy God on a very unholy people. And so you might as well go and buy the four horsemen of the apocalypse and put them on your kid's sheets. That is as soothing as what we're going to read in this text. And yet as uncomfortable as it may make, it, make us feel, I just want to say this. It's important that we don't just skip by texts like this. The, the Bible says that every passage is, is useful for teaching. It's, it's profitable for us so that we may grow and learn and training in righteousness. And today, this passage reveals much about who we are and who our Creator is. And so I want us to look at that today. Now, just as I said when I was talking about Genesis chapter 1, as we come to a passage like this, there are going to be a lot of questions that you probably have that are not going to be the focus of this sermon. You may wonder, how widespread was the flood? How big was the ark? How, how many animals could fit in the ark? Uh, how, how did God allow rats, those two rats, onto the ship? He should have screened them out. You may have lots of questions. Those are great questions, and you can study those on your own time, but that's not what we're going to do today. In fact, if you want to, uh, in looking at Noah's Ark this week, I saw that there's a, a literal life-size Noah's Ark that they've created. Now, it's called the Ark Encounter somewhere in 
maybe Kentucky or Indiana, I don't remember, so Tennessee, somewhere. Today, I want to focus, so you can feel free to go and visit that and learn all that you want to learn about Noah's Ark. But today, I want to focus on what the text does tell us, because it makes very clear three insignificant points that we cannot miss this morning. The first is this. This passage highlights, first and foremost, the destructive sinfulness of humanity. The destructive sinfulness of humanity. Now, to help you feel the weight of this, I think it's important to remember what has led us to this point in chapter 6. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the Bible told us that, that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. So in other words, everything that we see, everything we can touch, everything that we smell, everything that we can hear, none of that is here by accident. It is all here by God's design. It said that he brought order to the earth, and then in his most prized possession, he had the creation of humanity. He made Adam and Eve in his own image, and he placed them in the Garden of Eden where they had the abundant provision, everything that they could ever need. They had peace. They had perfect relationship with with God and with one another. And God, it says, looked at his creation and all of its wonder, and he says, this is very good. Everything I've created is good. But then we flipped over to chapter 3. And Dr. Melick helped us to, to understand what's often called the fall of humanity into sin. Really what it boils down to is that Adam and Eve, there in the garden with everything that they needed, they, they, at the end of the day, did not believe in the goodness and trust in the goodness of God. They believed the serpent's lie that God was holding something from them, that his commands were in some way burdensome, that it was keeping them from something. And so they chose to do their way instead of God's way. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, both of them, and the consequences were immediate. Chapter 3 is the beginning of all the brokenness in the world that we experience, the decay, the death, everything, the broken relationships. It all started in chapter 3. But as we saw in chapter 4, sin doesn't just stay quarantined. Chapter 4 taught us that sin spreads, and, and what we found is that it actually gets worse. Sin doesn't just stay in the hearts of Adam and Eve, but it's passed on to their children. Because in chapter 4, Mike talked about this last week, we were introduced to Cain, the very first baby that was born. He grew up, and then we read last week in a moment of, of jealousy and anger, in a premeditated act, he killed his younger brother, Abel. Instead of hiding in guilt and shame like Adam and Eve in the garden, what does it say about Cain? It says that he got worse. When God came and confronted him, how did, God, how did Cain respond? With indifference. He says, am I my brother's keeper? Complete indifference. At the end of chapter 4, you're then introduced to another guy named Lamech. And Lamech, again, sin progresses. It gets worse. He's not just a murderer. He's a double murderer. At the end of that passage, he's boasting about his sin. And so you can see the text is laying this out very clearly. Sin is spreading. It's progressing. It's getting worse and worse. Apart from the presence of God, apart from God's authority, apart from his power and his will, humanity is destroying themselves. And they're destroying the creation that surrounds them. What's well, there that we get to chapter 6? Because what we find in chapter 6 is not only does humanity destroy themselves, but no one seems to care. In Matthew 24 it says that in the days of Noah they were eating and drinking, they were married, they were giving in marriage and being married. It was as if nothing was going wrong. That was their analysis of their day. 
But I want us to read very clearly the analysis that God has of the world. The same God who looked at his creation and said, it is very good. Now that sin's in the world, I want you to hear what he says. Chapter 6, verse 5. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I don't know of any more piercing statement about the sinful condition of humanity than what is found in this verse. Do you see how the the writer is, is layering upon layer upon layer? He says that every intention of their hearts was only evil continually. What he's getting at is this, the the core of the human heart because of sin was now anti-God. It was evil. The inclinations of his heart were against the one who had created him. Well, of course, this spread. This didn't just stay in the heart, but it moved outward and acts toward other people. And so in verses 11 and 12, we read this. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Corruption is what happens when you remove yourself from the presence and authority of God. Corruption. When God looks at humanity in this moment, he sees violence. There's physical violence, there's emotional violence, there's there's sexual abuse, just like there is in our day. There's self-promotion, self-determination, self-seeking. He looks at mankind and he says, the heart of man is set against me. It's a very sad scenario. But what I want us to understand this morning is that While this passage is disheartening about the people of Noah's day, it is no less disheartening when it talks about us. You see, the flood we're going to find did not cure the human condition of sin. It just propelled it forward. Noah, as great as a man he was, was a sinner. And it continued on. And so when we read the rest of the Bible, it says that the same thing was true of the people of Noah's day. It's true about us. Apart from God, left on our own, our sinful condition is one in opposition to the God who created us. That's why even after the flood, we hear this analysis. King David in Psalm 53 says this, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. You flip over the New Testament, you think, well, surely as time progresses, we're getting better. We're we're moving toward goodness. We're getting kinder. No. The New Testament says this in Romans 3. It says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, the Bible from beginning to end paints the same analysis of humankind apart from our Creator. Left in sin, it says our hearts 
to our tongues, to our hands, to our feet. The evidence of sinful destruction is everywhere. Like Noah's day, our world is one new cycle after another of physical violence, of emotional violence, of sexual abuse, of self-promotion, of greed, of shame, of lust, of jealousy, of indifference, of anger and pride. All these things that were found in the lineage of Adam and Eve and Cain and Lamech and Noah, all these things can still be found in our own hearts today. I realize that this morning you came to church and you were hopefully wanting something inspiring. That's not the happiest truth as we start out. I know that. But friends, it is only when we get to that point when we see the destructive sinfulness of our own hearts that we will ever truly appreciate the salvation that God has made possible for us. And that's what we see in this text. We see the immense destructive sinfulness of humanity. But it also highlights a second truth. And this is one that's maybe unexpected. Because the second thing it highlights is the grieving pain of our God. Not only I told you that the destructive sinfulness of humanity, but the grieving pain of our Creator. A moment ago I told you that this passage was about judgment. I know that for many people this idea that, that God would bring judgment upon humanity is, a, is an uncomfortable thought. Perhaps I, when I, even when I say that, that distresses you. It, it, it hurts your own heart. This morning, what if I told you that there is someone else, a very surprising someone else in this text, who feels greater distress over our sin and over judgment than you could ever feel? Well, that's what we read, because what, what most people would expect in verse 6 is a very angry God. I think a lot of us have this picture of God that he's just raging. He's ready to, to punish. He's just wanting to zap you with his lightning bolt. He's raging. But that's not what we find. Verse 6, what does it say? And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And I want you to hear this. And it grieved him to his heart. As God looks at his creation, what that text is saying is that God was heartbroken. Now, realize that, that this writer is trying to use human emotion, human language to talk about God, which is always limited. But the point is this, that when God looked upon his creation, which he loved, and saw it destroying itself with sin, it says that he was filled with pain for us. What this means is that God has voluntarily bound up his heart with us, his creation. Think about that. He didn't have to. He's God. He didn't create us out of a, a need for us. No. But he chose to knit his own heart with us so that when he sees sin destroying our lives, it fills him with pain. That word that's used for grieved in the text is an interesting word because it, it's, it's most of the time used to, to, to try to convey this deep, unfulfilled longing. So, for example, it's used in Isaiah 54, 6, where it says that God was like a wife who married young only to be deserted and her spirit was filled with pain. Do you understand that picture that it's painting? Imagine a, a bride that is, is waiting expectantly for her groom, only for that person who said he loved her, for that person who said that he would be committed to her to run off with someone else. Can you imagine the trauma, the pain that that would cause? The text says that's the kind of pain 
that God experiences. His heart is broken when he sees us apart from him. Pushing him away, living for sin, the very thing that is destroying our own hearts. Friends, you will never to fathom the love that God has for his creation, the love that he has for you. I don't know about you, but this week as I was studying that part of the text, it broke me. Because oftentimes when I think about my own sin, if I'm regretting it, if I'm confessing it, it's oftentimes because I got caught or I just feel bad. Oh, I'm sorry I did that to that person. I'm sorry I, I did that thing. But how much should it break our hearts when we look at our choices to sin, to, to get rid of God's authority, to, listen, to not listen to his commands? How much should it break our hearts that when we do that, it breaks the heart of the Father who loves us and created us? This God who is for you, he's looking at you saying, I have given you these boundaries for your good, for you to flourish, for you to have joy and peace. And yet you're tearing them apart. Our God is brokenhearted over sin. He has knit his own heart with us. But the flip side of God's love is this. He is also a holy God. Not only is he a God of love, but he is a God of holiness. He is a God of righteousness and justice. And this justice demands that accountability for sin must take place. And that's where we read verse 7. Where it says this, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. It's interesting. You have the love of God, the, the pain of God for his creation, and the judgment of God, and they go hand in hand in this passage. Now I realize many of you will say, well, well Ryan, I, I don't think judgment is, can be loving. How is that even possible? I want you to think about this. Think about, um, uh, maybe perhaps you imagine with me that you have a friend that has cancer. A friend that you love with all your heart that has cancer. Now, are you going to be satisfied if a doctor looks at that, that friend and just says, well, the cancer's there, but let's just kind of let it do its thing. No. The most loving thing you want to do is you want to eradicate that cancer. You want to keep that thing out that is causing destruction to the one you love. Well, that's what we see with God in creation. And we see it come in a very interesting way where there's this, this word play that happens in the text. Uh, the, the Hebrew word used to describe human wickedness in the text in verses 12 through 14 is the word mashit. It's a word that means destroyers. It's saying our sin, by, in our sin, that's what humans are doing. We are destroying. We're destroying ourselves. We're destroying one another. We're destroying the creation around us. We are mesheters. But here in the text right here, what does it say? It says that God is now going to blot out. He's going to mesheet the mesheters. He's going to destroy the destroyers. Now, Americans, oftentimes we hear that and we think we don't want a God who does that. We don't want a God who is going to, to get rid of sin because we are sinners. What does that mean for us? We don't want a God who is going to execute judgment. Well, I think that reveals a couple things about Americans. Number one, I think it reveals that we do not understand the holiness of God. We don't understand his perfect holiness. We don't understand his, his, who he is and, and what he has done, his righteousness, his goodness, his, his justice. We don't fully get it. But secondly, here's what it also reveals that for Americans. It reveals we haven't endured very hard circumstances. 
Because for most of the world, a God who loves people and yet fails to execute justice does not make any sense. There was a, a man in the 90s named Miroslav Wolf who lived through the oppression and genocide of Croatia during that time. After having gone through that genocide um, and then moving to America, he said something very interesting. He said the only way a person could be satisfied with a God who never judges is if they've lived in the suburbs all their life and never experienced true injustice. He said when you watch family and friends murdered, when you watch your parents have their throats slit by another human being, the only way you do not go crazy is knowing there is a God who will ultimately bring justice. He said this, if you believe in a God who is all love and no justice, you will seethe and rage with vengeance and end up taking matters into your own hands. Only when you believe that God will one day execute perfect justice will you lay the sword down and be free from the hatred and bitterness and driving desire to avenge the wrong. You see, I think if we get to the heart of this thing, if we have experienced injustice in any way, I think our hearts cry out for a God who brings justice. Our problem is that we just don't want a God who's going to bring justice to our own sin. We want a God who brings justice to others, but not to us. Church, it is radically important that we do not pick and choose the characteristics of God and how we worship him. So many people say in America, say, hey, we want a God of love and mercy and kindness and goodness and power, but we do not want a God of holiness. We don't want a God of justice and of righteousness. You can't have one without the other. His love and his justice go together. And that's what we see in this text. Whether you believe it or not, there will be a day where God brings final judgment for sin. He loves his creation too much to let us persist in destruction forever. But in the mindfulness of his, in the midst of his judgment, in the midst of, of the, the, the exceeding sinfulness of humanity, I want you to read verse 8. Because it's here that we see the last thing that is highlighted, that is this, the amazing wonder of grace. It's only when we understand our sinfulness and the judgment that we deserve that we can be blown away by the amazing grace of our God. Because what does it say in verse 8? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now here's an important question for you. Why did Noah find favor? Why did he find favor? I think a lot of times the story that plays in our head goes something like this. Well, when God looked at his creation, Noah was a sinless man. He was, he was good. He wasn't like the rest of his creation. And so God saved him because of that. Do you realize that's not what the text says? Yes, in verse 9, what does it say? It says that Noah was a blameless man, that he was righteous in his generation. Yes, that is true. But the question is, how did he become that way? When you look at the order of these verses, it's very clear. Verse 5 said what? We are all sinners. That the every inclination of every human heart was against God. That includes God, Noah. But then comes verse 8. God gave Noah grace. What made Noah righteous? 
It's how he responded to the grace that God gave in verse 8. In other words, what I'm saying here is, is that Noah was not saved because he was righteous. He became righteous because God looked upon him with favor, with his unmerited favor, his undeserved favor on Noah's life. And Noah simply responded to it in faith. That's what we read in Hebrews chapter 11 where it talks about Noah. It says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became what? An heir of righteousness that comes by faith. It came by faith. Noah is not the hero of this story. God, in his grace, in his unmerited favor, is the hero of this story. Whereas Noah deserved judgment, God gave grace and provided a means of salvation for Noah and his family out of that judgment. I wonder, friends, have you ever realized what an incredible, gracious God has done for you? It's only when you get to that point of realizing your exceeding sinfulness and the judgment that you deserve that this becomes amazing. That you can look at verse 8 and say, Noah can say, I didn't deserve that. And that's true of all of you in this room. Our salvation testimonies are likely very different. We, some of us as kids, some of us as teenagers, some of us as adults. But what the one common denominator in all of them is that none of us deserve that salvation. We are from the lineage of Adam and Eve and Cain and Lamech. We did not deserve it. We deserved judgment. But the one common denominator is that God extended grace. And for those of us who are in Christ, we received that grace in faith. I love this. All the way back in Genesis chapter 6, already God is pointing us toward how humanity will be saved. And it will not be through earning righteousness. It will be through simply receiving it in faith. Now, Noah is a, a great example for us of how to respond. I will say that. While God is the hero, Noah's response here is remarkable. He receives this grace, and it says that he was a changed person. He walked with God. He was blameless, and even more than that, he was obedient. In this text, you see no words from Noah. Have you ever noticed that? In all of chapter 6, or chapter six there's no words from Noah, but all it says about Noah is this. He did all that God had commanded him. Can the same be said about you, friends? If you've received God's grace, if he has extended to you this amazing grace that saves you from the judgment that you deserve, are you living a life of unconditional surrender to him? Think about how foolish Noah would have looked. He's building this massive ark year after year. He's putting his trust in God in this massive ark. There's not been a flood. Imagine the mocking that he would have received from the world around him. And yet I want to remind you that there was a day where that mocking ended. Because after what some would say about 120 years, God brought the judgment that he promised upon the generation of Noah. Whereas Noah looked foolish for the most of his life and the world looked wise, one moment changed that equation forever. And it revealed that ultimately Noah, who put his faith in God, who placed his life in the ark, that he was the one who was wise and not the world who was living for themselves, believing that God would never bring judgment. This morning, as you consider the faith of Noah, I just want to ask you, do you look any different than the world around you? 
Are you living your life in unconditional surrender? Are you living a life of obedience because you realize, I didn't deserve what God has given me? You realize there's going to be a day of judgment. Are you living any different than the world around us this morning? As we close, I want to finish with this thought. The salvation that God provided Noah's family was truly remarkable. It was. But I want you to understand that it was temporary. Because Noah's main problem was not the waters of a flood. His main problem was this condition of his heart, sin. And that's why Noah and this flood and all of this, it didn't fix the sinful condition of humanity. Noah in chapter 9, we're going to see it next week, already sin is growing. It continues on. But friends, that is why this passage is powerful. It, is, it merely points us to a greater salvation that God has extended his grace to each one of us. As wonderful as the ark was, there is a greater ark of salvation that if we put our lives in that ark, it will bring salvation, not only from the judgment, but from our sin. And that ark is the life and death of Jesus Christ. You see, in, in, his, in his greatest act of, of both justice and love, God sent his own ark, his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sin. Whereas each one of us in this room, we deserve to be plunged into the waters of God's judgment. What did Jesus do? He took that punishment upon himself. He voluntarily plunged himself into the waters of God's judgment. God's wrath came on him so that it wouldn't have to fall on us. And today, if we simply respond to what he has done by placing our life in him, just as Noah and his family placed their life in the ark, we do not have to fear the waters of God's judgment when he returns and he brings an end to sin once and for all. This is an incredible picture. This passage points us to the greatest salvation, and that is a freedom from our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. My main question for all of you in this room, whether you have been in this church for 50 years or this is your first Sunday with us, is this. Is your life in Jesus? Is it in Jesus? No matter what the world around you says, have you put your trust in the salvation that only God could give? Have you stopped trying to earn it and received this incredible grace that God has extended to you through his son? There will be a day when God brings judgment to the earth. And I want to know, are you prepared for that day? 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God has done everything necessary for you to be saved, for you to be freed from the, the powerful hold that sin has on your heart. But the question is, are you testing his patience? He's been kind. He's given you time. And today is a day where you can turn to him and receive this incredible gift. But I want you to know, if you continually test his patience, there will be a day where that judgment comes true for you, just as it did for those in Noah's day. Because in verse 10, it says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Friends, this day is coming. Are you in Christ? Have you confessed your your exceeding sinfulness of your own heart. You say, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't done these things. 
For instance, look at the, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, anger in your heart, that's just as bad as murder. That's where it's headed. It says, lust in your heart is just as bad as committing adultery. Sin is in each one of us. Have we been forgiven from that sin? Have we confessed it? When's the last time you've been broken over your sin? When's the last time you didn't just feel bad, but you, you really thought about what that is doing in your relationship with Christ, the pain that your sin brings the God who loved you and saved you? When's the last time you've been truly broken? Last but not least, if you do know Jesus, how are you responding to that salvation? Are you living a life of unconditional surrender and obedience like Noah?